Welcome again. We are going to be in the book of Hebrews, and we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is one of those passages that I wanted to break up, um, but it's just too connected to do that. So we may take this passage again for the next for this week and next week, sort of like we did a couple weeks ago, because I'd like to talk about our topic today and then also next week talk about um, assurance as well, which is in this passage. So we're sort of right in the middle of chapter three. Uh, again, the gist of it so far is that Jesus is the way that God speaks to his people in these times. In the past, it was through the prophets and through uh, various other ways, but now it's through his son. And we just learned last week the reason why, again, another reason why is because he's greater not only just than the angels, but he's also a better mediator than that of Noah. I'm sorry, Moses. And uh, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He was looked at in Jewish uh, culture and thought as literally second to God, pretty much. Um, He was the hero, and rightly so. He obeyed God. He was faithful to God in all of his house by delivering the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. But therefore, we must now look at Christ in a different way. Christ was faithful in all his house as a son, not as a servant. So Jesus was the son over his house. Who's who's his house? That is the church. That's you and I. And so like we see throughout Hebrews, after we get this um, uh, admonition uh, about who Jesus is, we then get a, a further warning which this pastor at writing this letter is very, very concerned about his people and about their entering into the rest of God. So hopefully that's a good enough intro. I'm going to jump right into the scripture now. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that on the monitors. This is verses 7 or in your Bibles through 19. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now this is a portion, again, you're looking at all caps, right? You're looking at an Old Testament quote which is what Kevin just read. This is from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And so the the beautiful thing about this is that the the writer now actually is our own commentary for what he means. So if you read here, here's the exhortation. Take care, brethren, verse 12, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, two-letter word we're going to hear a lot about today, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. While it is said, again, 
Tomorrow, if you hear his voice, no, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. It's another repeated. It's a, it's, he, he continues to repeat this throughout the next few chapters, even. Verse 16, for, for who? He's talking about those in the wilderness. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that there were not, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This is really coming from a passionate, loving pastor who is in fear for the people of his congregation. Being worried about these sorts of things we can all relate to, whether we're in ministry or not. Those of us that, are, those of us that have children, we're constantly concerned about our children. For what? For their safety. We're concerned about their welfare, all these things. And really, what we're mainly concerned about is them not being deceived. Being deceived by the world in one way, shape, or form. Being deceived by their own minds. And, and ultimately here, he's concerned about this, these children, these spiritual children, them being deceived in their salvation. Now, the word saved is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot in Christianity. Okay, are you saved? I wonder if he's saved. Oh, she's not saved. Well, they're definitely not saved. And usually... It's because of some sort of behavior, attitude, um, or something else that, in my opinion, is very much uh, a scary thing to say about anybody. I don't like to say anybody is saved or unsaved. I like to look at people and say, well, what are they showing? What is their profession of faith? Because that's the only thing the Bible tells us. Do they profess Christ and do they live it? And we, could, we can go, again, that's a whole nother trail that we could go down. What does it mean to live like that? And are they in a bad place in their life? You know, if you just pick up somebody's mail and you start reading a bunch of all unpaid bills, you can assume that they're not doing finances right. Or they could just be through a, a bad spot. Maybe they were uh, on vacation for a couple months. Who knows? It's hard just to grab in somebody's life and say, yes, they're saved or not saved. But at the same time, and I don't think it's necessarily our right to do that, which I'll expand on a little bit more. But when it comes to ourself, when it comes to our own fears and concerns about our relationship with the Lord, there is where I think this, uh, this author is really uh, zeroing in on, challenging that people, are you, and he doesn't use the word saved, it's very rarely used in the, in the scriptures, um, it means rescue, okay? But we imply that when somebody gets saved, they're getting translated out of the old life, out of the old world, the kingdom of darkness, and they now have new eyes and they're able to see Christ. And so therefore they're going to live that way. I know early in my salvation, I was told of the phrase, again, another saying that comes from the very heights of theology way down here and we sort of minimize everything once saved always saved it's one of one of the one of the worst quotes 
uh, in my book. I don't really like that phrase. Once saved, always saved. Is it theologically true? Can we prove that? Yes. But when it just gets thrown out and it ends up, uh, could end up causing deception for those that hear it or those that even believe it. Does the Bible guarantee that those that believe in Jesus continue all the way to the end as saved people? I could hear all your thoughts going, well, yes, well, no, well, maybe, I don't know, what does he mean? The once saved, always saved uh, quote or, or saying or whatever you want to call it is to me very deceptive because it takes it aims right at the doctrine of salvation and cheapens it. And so I don't ever like to start out with that. There's a lot that needs to be said before that. And that's what I hope to get to today. But really, first things first is what truly is belief in Jesus? What truly is belief in Jesus? And how do we know if we have it for sure? And why is it important? See, I started in the beginning uh, in a church that said, you know, if you go and say the prayer, which, of course, if you don't know what the prayer is, it's a prayer of inviting Jesus to come into your heart. It's a prayer admitting that you're a sinner and that you want Christ to come into your heart uh, and that, you're, for, and that you, you're asking for forgiveness. And when you say that, you are then cleansed from your sins and you're saved. But the problem with me is I went up and said that prayer and I never felt saved. I still felt the same. So I always was worried, am I really saved? How come I don't see or feel any different? I mean, I was a young Christian, so I went through all the steps. I went to Bible studies and I read my Bible and I did my best to turn from my sins. But most of the time during that next week's service that I would go to and the pastor started talking about all of those people in the audience who think they're saved and they're not, better come on back up and make sure. And so I did that several times, repeatedly going up, repeating the prayer, rededicating my life, and worrying, was I deceived? Am I not saved? I want to be really, really saved. I want to really, really know. But the question isn't right now what, what, whether that is or isn't salvation. The question is, is what gets us into the position of questioning our own salvation. What gets us into that position? And I think it's one word, a three-letter word, sin. Sin. When we sin, and we sin often, you can guarantee that when you sin and you continue in sin, you will begin to doubt God's, all sorts of things about God specifically God's commitment in loving you and specifically in God's commitment in keeping you and saving you to the end. You start worrying about if I were to die today, what would happen? And you start to get, you start to end up getting worried and anxious. And so there is something called self-deception. It's all throughout the scriptures. Self-deception means you are deceiving yourself, and in relate to as it relates to Christ, you would say we would say we're deceiving ourselves, saying yes, I am Christ's, but really I'm not. But being deceived is 
by nature very deceptive. I don't know if you've ever been deceived before. Maybe you clicked on the on a bank link that you know you thought your bank was telling you to immediately log in and and confirm the four thousand dollar you know purchase you just made on PayPal or whatever, and you're like, what? I didn't make that. And before you know it, you gave all your information. You were deceived. The, the The key about being deceived is this: you think everything that's going on is right. You think that everything you're doing is good and right, but it's really not. Now, again, if a pastor or leader was concerned about his people being deceived about their relationship with God and their very own salvation, he would speak exactly like this writer does in this passage. And so the question is, is why is he so worried about these people specifically failing to enter into the rest of God? R-E-S-T, rest, R-E-S-T, rest of God. Entering into that time and that period of knowing you're in God's presence. He's worried in there that they are deceived like the people of Israel were often deceived through their history. And I know we like to blame everything on Israel, but we like to point back at Israel and say, could you imagine God saving them in the wilderness? Oh man, I would have been like praising the Lord. I would have organized like wilderness ministries and all sorts of things. I don't know why they didn't believe. They were grumbling and complaining. I don't, man, that's not, no, we, we are just the same as they. But why were they so worried? Why was this writer so worried? Because he was thinking back and comparing the current state of the flock with the previous state of the flock. He was currently, he was comparing the people of Israel in front of him that day, the Hebrews, to their ancestors, when they were, went before the Lord and went in front of him in the wilderness, they were led by the cloud. The cloud was before them, around them, everywhere. The cloud protected them. God protected. He provided. He did all of those things. And they complained and whined. Now, Psalm 95 that we, what we read earlier today, you notice that this psalm is very unique. And see, this writer pulls out Psalm 95 a lot in the scripture. Because if you noticed in Psalm 95, when Kevin read it this morning, it's a very, uh, very, uh, I would say, uh, a song, uh, a psalm of praise, a psalm of like rejoicing. We are the sheep of God's pasture, you know, let's enter in. Let's enter in with thanksgiving and praise. This is, the, this is our God, right? They're, they're just raving and ranting about how great God is. And then what do they say? Right here. You're ranting, you're raving, you're doing all that stuff. But however, don't take it for granted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked him, God provoked me in the wilderness. They tried him by testing him. What was the test? They saw his works for 40 years. And, and, and they continued to complain. Now, he mentioned, it doesn't mention it here in this passage. But in, the, in, in, the, uh, in Psalm 95, it talks about Meribah and Massah. These are two names. Meribah means strife and contention. And Massah means testing and despair. 
See, what happened was, was right when God pulled Israel out of Egypt with all of these amazing wonders, showing himself so strong, showing himself so loving, so protecting, calling Israel his, his son, doing everything that he had promised to do, soon as they get out of this bondage that they're in, within the very first few months, they're already complaining about whether or not this is really God who is taking them out of Egypt. Like, where is he now, they're saying. We are starving and we're thirsty. And so the very first time that this happened was Meribah and Massa. This happened twice. It's when Moses went up to the rock after the people complained and whined about God. Is God here with us or not? And Moses was told by God to strike the rock. And that one rock was to hydrate the entire nation of Israel in the wilderness, along with all their cattle and animals and everything else. And because of that whining and complaining, because God is who he is, a loving, holy, and righteous God, he's not going to save people to have them die out in the wilderness, he provided that water for them. That was at the beginning of the ministry. Forty years go by, and this happens again. In the very last year of the ministry. So we see Exodus 17, chapter 17, verses 6 to 7. This is the first time it happens. You know, it says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. And then he named that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now then, at the end of the ministry, same thing happens in Numbers 20. Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice, because the people were complaining and the people were mumbling again for 40 years. God wiped them out. None of those that went into the promised land initially ever came out. I'm sorry, none of them that were rescued from Egypt originally never went into the promised land because they were wiped out by God because of their lack of faith and because they questioned and tested God. And so this is a very big problem. What the writer is doing is he's comparing that group of people and he's saying to them, look, if God didn't spare the people that he saved from Egypt and brought them out and did all these crazy miracles, how much more do you think he's not going to spare you when you reject the very own person that he is to come and save you? You're rejecting the son of God. And how are you doing that? Well, you're not listening to his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. Now, I joked around and said, tomorrow, if we hear his voice. But that's honestly what we wish it said. Now, tomorrow, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And all of us will be like, yes, cool. I'm going to definitely remember to hear that voice tomorrow. Absolutely. Because tomorrow is our favorite word, right? We love doing whatever we could do tomorrow instead of today. But the Bible's very clear of the urgency of salvation. There's an urgency of salvation. And God creates that urgency by the very nature of what death does. Death sneaks up on you. It takes you by surprise. And it's ruthless. It has no friends. 
death wipes people out, then God has given us this debt, this curse of death, with at that so he could play that up against the urgency of us knowing that our time to believe or to disbelieve God is short. And that goes for every single one of us here as well. We don't have tomorrow. None of us here can guarantee that we will be here tomorrow. Yet we will say tomorrow, I'm going to get my right, my life right with God. Tomorrow, I'm going to be listening. You see, when he says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's playing off of the very first verse in Hebrews chapter one, where it says God now in the last time spoke to us through his prophets and and everything else. But now he's speaking to us through his son. So you have the very son of God that is going after you. He's very he's pursuing you. He's speaking to you constantly. But yet, in this case, they were hardened. They didn't want to listen, just like those that were in the wilderness. How frustrating is it when your children don't trust you? How frustrated is, is it for me? I talk a lot about children because I have three teenagers and one nine-year-old. And I have to tell you, one of the things that is my urgent like thing that I'm trying to do constantly in my life is train up my children unto the Lord. And oftentimes when you do that, it requires that you do things that they don't really like. You know, they don't really like it when they have to get a spanking if they're disobedient or, or completely in rebellion. They will get spanked in my house in love and gentleness, um, but they will be reprimanded and disciplined. They don't like that. And then, of course, when the teenager first turns a teenager, they miraculously get all knowledge. They become omnipresent even, and they're able to be all places, all things, and they know everything. And it's, it's amazing. And so I say to them, look, you think you know what you're doing here, and they say, but you don't. And they dad, you just don't understand. And the thing is, is it's so frustrating. They're being deceived sometimes by the world and by the ideas of the world. And they don't trust you. They don't hear your voice. It's so frustrating. If they only knew how much we love them and that we would do nothing to try to lead them astray, be vindictive or do any of those things, we want the best for them. But what do they do oftentimes is they harden their heart by not listening. And they act as if you're not even there. Now imagine the children of Israel. All of this amazing things that God did And do you know what they said? They didn't say, well, you know, we don't really want to follow God anymore. They didn't say, well, you know what? We don't really want like this law that he gave us. We don't know if we could do that. They didn't say anything like that. They insulted God by saying, is he even among us? Wow, this God just did an amazing thing for these people. Did the most amazing miracles With such a strong, loving hand that he saved his people and redeemed his people. And they did not trust him. How? Because they said, is he even among us? This is the thing. Lack of knowing that God is among you is one thing. However, when you see and know that God is among you, because you've seen him work in your life, 
because you've known, you know exactly what he's capable of and what he's done. And then you go and say, eh, I don't believe it. He's probably not even here. He's probably gone. Or does he even exist anymore? Or maybe all of those wonders were done by Pharaoh and he's just leading us out here to test us. We better go with them. Or you know what? Let's go and serve this country's gods over here or that country's God. That's what they were doing. And God says, I was angry with this generation for 40 years. They always go astray in their heart. And they, asked, and they did not know my ways. What does he mean by that? You didn't know my ways. You see, notice that when they said that God isn't among us, they said, God said that you tested my holiness. You don't know my ways. You don't know that I'm so holy that I would never leave you in the wilderness to die. Do you know I would never leave you without even a meal to wake up to? Do you know that I'm going to take care of all of your sheltering needs? Do you know that all these crazy, massive armies that are surrounding you, that are, that are just bloodthirsty barbarians, that I'm going to wipe them out in a second? You're not thinking that I am holy, that I could do what I set out to do. That was the insult that they said against God. Now, this is, the, this is just the beginning. Because if you are, don't believe that God is among you, if you don't really believe God cares about what's going on right now, I can guarantee you it's going to cause you, like the, like the Hebrews, to drift away and neglect your salvation. And why? Because when you tr- start distrusting God, you will start to gravitate towards sin. And then you will, like these people in the wilderness who are like, oh, were they saved? Oh, yeah, they were saved. They, they were saved out of Egypt. Were they saved during the 40 years? Yeah, well, until, they, until God wiped them out. God was saving them. He was feeding them. He rescued them. But they didn't finish strong. They proved themselves to be not God's people. They hardened their heart. They hardened their heart. That means that instead of taking the word of God, which is like living water, which softens their heart, they chose to not hear that word, to not allow it to penetrate, to not allow it to do its softening capabilities And they rejected God. Now, when you take water away from that heart, it doesn't get moist. It ends up getting what? Harder and harder and harder. And that's what ends up happening. When you start to distrust God, know that the enemies are there of God right like this going, I'm ready. Let's just have a field day. They know the enemies know you better than you know yourself. The enemies know your hidden sins better than you know yourself. And they are starting to throw them out at you. And before you know it, you begin to drift away. Now, let's look at some of these warnings in Scripture, because I don't want you to think that I'm just taking a Scripture such as this and just trying to beat you over the head with it to say, oh, you should be scared and maybe you're really not saved. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to do that at all. What I'm trying to say is, is that this, this, this author or this writer is super, super concerned about the salvation of people that he often refers to in this book as people that are partakers of the heavenly blessing, partakers of Christ. 
So this leaves us with a little bit of a seemingly contradictory situation here. Are they saved or are they not? Well, let's look at some of the warnings here of self-deception as it relates to our salvation. Listen to some of these. <clears throat> Obviously, in our, very, in our verse 14, it says, for if we have be, this is the one that I read at the beginning, it says, for we have become partakers of Christ. Right? We've become partakers of Christ if, if, that's that word, okay, that conditional statement, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So next week, I want to talk about assurance. This week, I want to talk about what is, again, we're, we're talking about the opposite of assurance this week. We're saying, how do we know if we are surely saved? 1 Thessalonians 3.8, for, we, for now we really live if we stand firm in the Lord. He did that in the, if you stand firm in the Lord. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead of sin, the spirit is alive. Romans 8.10. And there's probably 20 other if statements like this in the New Testament. If you are saved. Now, why is that? Why are they, why do we see grace over every single place in the New Testament? And we also see these pastoral words of warning. And then, of course, the, the one that just nails the coffin is that Jesus' very own words in Matthew 7:22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and or and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So these people were outside of Christ actually doing the work of the ministry. So all I'm trying to say is, is that that's a talk about, you know, reasoning from the lesser to the greater here. This is like this is like people who would have no question at all if they're actually doing miracles. In the name of Jesus, I command you to get up and walk. Oh, wow, he got up and he walked. He was crippled. And I'm unsaved. I'm not Christ. I'm a, I'm a practice. I practice lawlessness. And he, he says to me, leave, when I was actually doing things for him. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, I love for this to say, you know, just as the Holy Spirit says, don't harden your hearts, but it's okay because God saves by grace and you're going to be saved anyway. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, he stops short of, of trying to make this easy for them. He's telling them specifically and wholeheartedly that you must challenge yourself to ensure that you are not being deceived. So am I saying here, you can lose your salvation. Is that what I'm saying? Well, no. Again, it's that high theological statement or high theological doctrine of what they call soteriology, salvation. And we like to bring it down and go, God saved, once saved, always saved. Well, there's a lot more to that salvation. And it's not works. But there is something that God commands of us in order for us to know for a fact that we are his. See, this has nothing to do with him. So I'm saying you could be deceived that you are in fact believing in Jesus. 
This is what they said. He is the one God's speaking through. They were deceived in that. They didn't believe this from the heart. Did they believe in the person of Jesus existed? Yeah. Did they believe that Jesus was a great man? Yes. Did they believe that Jesus um, died for the sins of the world? Yes. Did they believe he rose from the dead? Yes. They believed all these things intellectually. They believed his supernatural acts and all these things. But it never came down for them to the point of actually believing in Christ to the point of them looking at themselves and going, I know that I'm Christ's because this ain't me. This is a new person. See, there's the there right there is only you know and only God knows. Because you could trick me and everybody else just like I could trick you. But are you that new creation or are you becoming that new creation? Have you been made new? Has your mindset been changed from that of loving sin to hating sin? Notice I'm not saying sin because you're going to sin. But whether you love that sin and you, and you make that sin a part of your life to the point it hardens your heart is going to determine whether or not you finish until the end, which will provide the answer to the question, have you entered into God's rest? And so it's a constant check that we have to have if we are unsure about this living, am I living as a new creature in Christ so that I can hear God's voice? Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Jesus said that my sheep know my voice They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. See, it's very simple. It's very simple. Every single person, can you lose your salvation? No. Every single person that the Lord goes out to save will never, ever get thrown back into the realm of Satan, into the kingdom of darkness. They'll never, ever get plucked out of God's hand. As one of his chosen. They may fall into sin. They may wander. They may um, have ups. They may have downs. They may do ministry. They may not. But God will never ever forsake that person that he has saved. And that means you. If you could say that you've confessed Christ. And that you're made new. You know where that you're here hopefully right now. You know where you're sitting. You know the existence that you have right now is real. Without getting philosophical, very small analogy here, that's how you should know that you're saved because you exist as that new creature that loves God. But if there's any doubt, if there's any doubt at all, and you're drifting away, I know there was times in my walk with the Lord where I've called my friends and said, I don't think I have it anymore. I just don't, I feel like God has completely departed from me. I feel like no presence of God at all. Like, what's going on? Like, is this, is this God just hanging it up and giving it up? I get it back. I got encouraged. But it's the sin that caused me to drift away to get to that point, to doubt my salvation. And God just says, come back. Just come back. Let's start over again. Grace. You're saved by grace. I love you. You can never get plucked out of my hand. But Lord, everything's coming down. All my doubts. I don't know where you're at. I can't hear you. All that stuff. 
rest. Rest. Because sin is too deceitful for you to take that on. Let me take on that sin for you. You will then hold fast that beginning of your assurance firm until the end. You will then do those things easy. You won't be, have a sermon like this and say, wow, this is, I, I have to really, really be careful. And there's no shame in th- saying that you have to be careful and that you need to really make sure that you're saved. How do you do that? Well, I say again, go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Notice that the, the key here is trust. Again, it's trust. They're walking in the wilderness. They didn't trust God that he was among them. He didn't, they didn't trust him. So number one, we have to resolve to trust Jesus Christ in our life, that he has us and that nothing is going to let, he is never going to let us go and we are never going to let him go. See, you have, to, you have to embrace that fact. You are never going to let Christ go. He can't resist that. You see, that's how you stay, you know that you're saved as you stay in the vine. You are a branch and you're in the vine. You what? Abide in the vine. But you see, you must do that and grab on, but it's God who gives you the new heart. That's why to me it's very trivial to say once saved, always saved. Because God in the apps, the act, the essence of salvation is change, renewal. It's a new life. It's a new heart. You can't take that back. Just like he can't make you unborn now. Okay? When dying is not being unborn. When you're born again, you are given that new heart and that new spirit. He takes away the stone of flesh and gives you a heart of flesh. See, this only this assurance can only come from the master himself. This can't come from anybody else. This can't come from a, you know a, a really good encouraging talk from the pastor or anybody else. If you don't know, if you're 100% not 100% sure that you're Christ, then make yourself 100% sure. Make yourself 100% sure. You you're unsure if you're the chosen or not, be the chosen. Okay, live for Christ, and then you'll know you're his. I want to end with 2 Peter 1, 4-9. It says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, now listen to believers, listen to this is, what, this is how we know. This very reason, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and then brotherly kindness, and then love. If these are yours, he says, and they are increasing, see that? They're increasing. This is an evidential program here. They're increasing. They're not always increasing. They may go down, they may go up, but on the map, generally, they're increasing. They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the gist of it. The more you live for Christ, the more you know you're his. The more you don't live for Christ, the more you will question, the more you will look at these passages and be scared. 
And you know what? God isn't in the business of just getting you somewhere. He's in the business of making you someone. And that's more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here that's challenged with this uh, idea of salvation, that they would know who you are, Lord, that you would reveal yourself strong to them, that you would um, let them know that there's nothing that can separate you from them, Lord, once they're yours. And God, if there are any here that doubt that, I pray that they would just simply come to you, Lord, that they would hear your voice and they would respond, believe on you, Lord, give you their life and trust you with all else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's all stand together and let's sing our last song. Oh,